Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. As a politics junkie, I've become very interested in the political systems of other countries. Our guest on today's episode is Christopher Wilson. Christopher lives in Vancouver, Canada, and formerly worked for the Rebel Media. In today's episode, I talk with him about Canada's current political situation, as well as a little bit as well about South African issues, as he has some South African roots himself. We had a great conversation, so please enjoy today's episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. And today's guest is coming all the way with nine hours time difference from the west coast of British Columbia, Canada. I'd like to welcome onto the show Christopher Wilson. How's it going, man? How are things on your side? Yes, it's uh, great to be with you. And uh, obviously, I uh, know you uh, found me when I was a, in, in a, a journalist in a past life. I'm no longer doing that now with the Rebel Media. But it's uh, always great to talk politics and current events uh, with anybody around the world. And I, I'm happy to be here. Well, thanks very much for coming onto the show. Now, I first uh, heard about you, funny enough, uh, quite randomly, you know, I was just sort of scrolling through YouTube and I saw a few of Rebel Media's videos and I saw one where they spoke about South Africa and, I, and you know, being a South African, my ears prick up and my eyes shoot to anything where I see international media talking about South Africa. You know, in the, in the broader scheme of things, we're a fairly irrelevant country, uh, you know, and uh, as are most countries. Uh, so I just thought that was quite interesting. So um, let me uh, ask you just to introduce yourself a bit, what you do, and uh, maybe you can tell the listeners a bit about your South African connection. Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I did the video, really, is because my family comes from South Africa. My mom was born and raised there. My aunt and uncle and my cousins lived there. My grandfather uh, visited me every year, was a former South African Airways employee, so he used to oh, come wow. out to Vancouver every summer. And uh so it really was, it is a country that's close to my heart and it's somewhere I visited uh, maybe more than a half dozen times now. I even went on exchange when I was in high school to St. Sidian's Boys oh. College there in Johannesburg um, for a term. So that was really uh, a great experience getting to live actually in South Africa. And it wasn't uh, necessarily uh, uh, the same. Obviously, it was, a, it was a big you know culture shock for me being someone who grew up here in Canada, but it, it, it was a very cool experience. And with Rebel Media stuff, it was it was kind of simple for me. It was you know I see all this sort of rhetoric and the the, the sort of the heightened tensions surrounding things like land expropriation back in South Africa and also the sort of the shift in power as as Zuma was being forced out. That was sort of the time that I was reporting. That was during that time that I was reporting. And so I think that just generally in Canada we have a ton of expatriate uh, South Africans. I know in Vancouver here you can regularly walk down the street and hear people speaking Afrikaans, which I know much seems very strange to people in South Africa that Afrikaans of all languages is being spoken on the streets, uh, you know, nine hours away. But it's uh, it's a big population out here, to be honest. And we have, uh, you know, my and of course it's a community. Just like when you spend time in South Africa, you notice that families are very close, and it's the same when they've moved here as well. I'm just interested to ask, is you know, again, we're well aware that there are plenty of South Africans living abroad, and by far the mm-hmm. biggest population of expat South Africans are in Australia, New Zealand, and the UK. Um, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure there are bound to be some in North America. Do do you find that South Africans living in Canada, in your experience, tend to sort of huddle together in like a bit of a group, or do they sort of try to, uh, what's the word, assimilate into society? I'm just interested to to hear what your experience has been. Well, I don't think they're any different than most, any immigrant group, whether, you know, it's just natural to gravitate towards your own community, people you may know. Uh, but uh, I wouldn't say that it's any, like, it's very clicky, or it's like, you know, there's only, like, you know, South Africans only stick with South Africans. I mean, I think what you you find is that 
a lot of the colonials get together. So when the, the rugby is on, there's Australian, South Africans, Brits. <laughs> they're all getting together and watching the rugby, right? And, and especially here, we have a seven-stop in town now. Yes. So that's a really just a, a gathering of, of sort of all the rugby nations, including Canada and the United States, who are sort of starting to get better. At least we're pretty good at sevens, maybe not quite there on the, the 15s. But um, that's what I find is that you, you find that a lot of the uh, same with other sports, too. I mean, like even the Cricket World Cup gets played here. And then you, you can even throw in our East Indian and Pakistani uh, immigrant groups, too, to that and the Caribbean uh, folks as well. So that, that kind of those are the kind of groups that I think together And sports is such an interesting thing. It's such a big passion of mine. And I think that it really unites a lot of people and it unites people from different countries and it allows people to kind of break through those barriers of maybe staying in their little you know, click here. And, and Vancouver can be a little bit like that. As your listeners probably know, we're an extremely um, diverse city. We're actually, uh, um, uh, uh, the the white uh, is no longer, whites are no longer a majority. We're actually a plurality. And so it's a minority majority city. And so it really wouldn't work very well in a place like Vancouver if, if people only stuck within their own sort of uh, ethnic groups when they move here. South Africans benefit, obviously, from being able to, often English, you know, it's, it's a seamless transition, a transition into Canadian society, especially out here, so it's a lot easier for them. That's pretty much how I would kind of evaluate uh, expatriate South Africans that I've seen here in Vancouver or in BC. I find it so interesting that you mentioned about the sport, you know, it is quite a remarkable thing yeah. how sport has this very unifying character about it. I was actually having a conversation about rugby, you know, that's by far my favourite sport uh, this coming weekend. Mm-hmm. I'm driving down to my local, the city nearby to go watch South Africa play against Australia and I'm so freaking excited because for the first time we're actually doing quite well, so it's quite interesting to hear The that. boxer, that's good. Is that the Tri-Nation stuff? Uh, yeah, well, it's called the Rugby Championship now since Argentina got okay. introduced. But, you know, because we beat New Zealand oh, okay. last weekend. Um, and wow. that was so insane, man. Like, I can't even dis- – people were going crazy about it. There were op-eds and newspapers and SA Rugby magazine was talking about it. And Nick Mallett yeah. and all the pundits were just going berserk. But i got to say, it was – you know, it's the first time we've beaten them in New Zealand in, like, I think almost 10 years. So, wow. yeah, it was a big deal. Oh, excellent, excellent, excellent. Yeah, I, know, I, I think I saw one of your Facebook posts. I think you were quite happy, so that's, that's great. I mean, I always try to get, I try to catch as much rugby I can on TV here. It's a little bit tricky. We don't really get those types of games. We often just get the big international games. Obviously, the Sevens has become a huge, like as I mentioned, we have the, the, the event in the, the tour here in Vancouver. That's just become a huge thing. Yeah, that's very cool. Jeez, I think my dream, I've seen the Cape Town Sevens a few times, but you know, my dream is to actually try to check it out overseas one day. I was looking at tickets, funny enough, to the Hong Kong one, and they were <laughs> literally 10 times the price of what it cost to go to the Cape Town Sevens. So, I, I don't know, like, <laughs> yeah. our, our exchange rate is, 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 is not so great. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah. it's in the in the toilet, is it? <laughs> yeah, a bit of a disaster. I think we'll, uh, yeah, we'll get to that sort of thing. So, you know, I have become quite interested in Canadian politics recently, and I've been following politics from uh, countries around the world, but I really became quite interested in, in Canadian politics when the Conservative Party in Canada was holding uh, its election of a new leader after uh, Stephen Harper stepped down. So I'm here to uh, ask you a little about if you can explain to us the political scene of Canada, and I want to start off by going back a little bit. I'm sure you can give us all the context, but... Let's start off by uh, talking about Stephen Harper's premiership and how things have moved into Justin, uh, the premiership of Justin Trudeau. Sure. Uh, Stephen Harper was the prime minister before Justin Trudeau, and he was selected prime minister in, in 2006. And 
He was prime minister until 2015 when he was defeated in the general election by Justin Trudeau. So nine years, I mean, that's a pretty good run. Uh, three elections, two minority governments, one majority government. We uh, use the parliamentary, Westminster parliamentary system here in Canada, just like uh, the UK and uh, you guys do in South Africa, although we do not elect, uh, we, we do not elect a head of state here either. And um, so our party leaders are the leaders of government and then you know, uh, just like anywhere you with the Westminster system uh, works. So Stephen Harper was a very interesting prime minister because I would say he's probably the best conservative prime minister we had since, oh, I don't know, Diefenbaker probably, I would say, just because, um, you know, John Diefenbaker was kind of in the 1950s and 60s because we had some conservatives uh, Joe Clark, who was, you know, one of the things that he did was, uh, you know, he tried to, uh, you know, stop South African travelers, you know, as a fight against apartheid that would have, you know, affected my family. Personally, my grandfather was going to be affected by that, but he was only in power for about a few months. Then we had Brian Mulroney, who really was more of a, what we call a red Tory, a sort of a, a cons or, or Ameri my American friends may call a rhino or, you know, a sort of an establishment conservative who's more interested in big government and, and appeasing special interest groups. And Mulroney, unfortunately, he tried to get the uh, Quebec nationalists on board with his program. And if uh, your viewers are aware of how Quebec uh, works, uh, it's a bit of a, uh, they want to, there's, there's a sovereigntist streak in Quebec. So Mulroney kind of lost the country. What emerged in the Western Canada was the formation of what Stephen Harper would eventually come into, and that was a new conservative party, dropping the name progressive conservative simply being a conservative party. So that's why I sort of suggest that Stephen Harper's legacy is really cementing a true right of center or a true conservative legacy into Canadian politics. And that's remarkable because I would say that generally Canada is a fairly liberal country. And the problems usually arise from the fact that we look at at ourselves compared to the United States all the time, we generally tend to say they, if they're too conservative, we tend to think that we shouldn't be quite like that. So Stephen Harper was a remarkable prime minister. I really believe he did a lot of things. He nav nav navigated the country through the, the Great Recession, uh, uh, which which he didn't do necessarily with true conservative or libertarian principles. He did deficit spend, but they did it in a way I think that was much more, um, you know, uh, they reserved the right to do a lot more compared to the way other countries injected sort of government stimulus into the economy after the, the recession. But our banking system was a little more stable, too, in this country. Unfortunately, Harper was defeated in uh, 2015, and that was generally due to Justin Trudeau's celebrity status. I truly believe that. Um, we were sort of stuck in this part of the country in 2015. We weren't in the era of Trump yet. We were sort of in this sort of sort of weird time politically, we were sort of apathetic to really the big world events that, that we consider so uh, important in 2018. And so Justin Trudeau, I think he really rose into power without really a lot of accountability. He didn't have a lot of experience. His, his father was prime minister before him, of course, and that sort of is what the legacy that he was elected on. But he really never had a serious job before he was elected. And so it's quite surprising for someone like me to see that happen. But how, however, when uh, Stephen Harper resigned, that's what kind of led us into this new uh, leadership era, which you, you mentioned now, which has become a big fight for the soul of the Conservative Party, if you like. It was during the leadership race, and even now, with uh, a breakaway party forming again in Canada, we could see some future vote splitting on the right. We're not exactly sure, and that may benefit Justin Trudeau. So it's kind of a crazy time here, and I know you want me to get into that a little bit, but I'll let you set it up a bit with, the, with what's happened recently.
Yeah, you know, that was that was the thing which sort of really uh, got me interested in, in the situation. I mean, you're right, Justin, Justin Trudeau is quite the celebrity. He's this relatively young, you know, fairly good-looking guy. He freaking does interviews with BuzzFeed. I don't know a single leader of the world who would do an interview with BuzzFeed. I think that, that tells you what you need to know about him. Um, so he's got, like, the, the whole charisma going and... Um, I think yes. as a result of that, he's he seems popular. So I, I, I wanted to ask two things just regarding his leadership of Canada. The first thing is, what do you think the popularity of Trudeau is like today? Do you think the population of Canada is still pretty on board with him? Or have they become a little bit disillusioned with certain mm -hmm. things? And, um, uh, and second of all, you know, in terms of the facts of the case, how has the economy done under Trudeau versus uh, Harper and uh, how have policies changed or have, has there even been a quite a significant policy shift or is it more of a facade that Trudeau has, like you mentioned, because he's such a celebrity? We'll start with the popularity thing. I think right now Justin Trudeau really benefits from the fact that he's fighting with Donald Trump. And that makes him more popular in Canada than he really should be just because Donald Trump is not very popular in this country. And especially through the NAFTA negotiations, whenever, you know, Donald Trump goes on the air and says, Canada's treated us terribly, you know, even someone who's sympathetic to Donald Trump like myself would say, that's just not really that true. And so that benefits Justin Trudeau. However, the shine has certainly worn off. I mean, we've seen the media start to really focus on some of his blunders a lot more than they used to. We saw a floor crossing just last week. We saw an, uh, a, a Greater Toronto Area Liberal MP, who was a former uh, Air Force officer, cross the floor to the Conservatives because of the because of her concerns with the way Justin Trudeau was running things. So there are, I would say, kinks in the armor. I would say right now, though, Justin Trudeau is really benefiting politically from a very weak uh, party on his left known as the NDP. They would be considered similar to the Liberal Democrats in um, the UK. And that, that party is not polling very well right now. So it's really become a two-horse race between the Conservative Party and the Liberals. And so that becomes a little trickier to see how that's going to play out as far as Popularity, And of course, Canada is a very regional country, you know, so Justin Trudeau, as long as he's willing to protect the dairy farmers against Donald Trump and the NAFTA agreement, he'll, he'll probably do very well in Ontario and Quebec, where most of the votes are and most of our dairy farmers are. As far as the policy shifts, there have been significant changes. Obviously, we've seen this, the idea of a gender um, neutral or gender, uh, you know, equal, equal gender cabinet 50-50. Um, you know, I don't know why he decided to do that. I mean, if you, you had to announce it, I mean, I heard someone the other day saying, you know, if they had just shown up with 50-50, I'm pretty sure the female journalists would have noticed that right away and asked a question, and then you wouldn't need it to, you know, you know, promote this so much and, and, and try to force it in people's faces that this is what you're doing. Look at me, I'm so righteous. And I feel like that, there's a lot of that within Justin Trudeau's policies. As far as like hard, hard economic policies, He's tried to implement a national energy strategy, which is essentially tried to inhibit, but also, you know, I would say it's inhibiting the oil and gas industry, which is very important to Canada, especially the province of Alberta. And we, right now we're in a bit of a crisis because we're having some problems getting some pipelines built here and trying to get this product to export to Asia, where most of the new markets are, instead of just simply selling our oil to the United States. And so Justin Trudeau has tried to bring in what they call a carbon tax. And now some of your viewers might be familiar with environmental policy. This is an attempt to, to mitigate climate change. Obviously, it's part of the plan that they, they signed at the Paris Climate Accord. But it's kind of gone over very poorly in Alberta, where the, they've said if they're not going to and they even have a, a, a fairly left-leaning government in provincially in Alberta right now. They've even said, we're not going to join into this uh, carbon tax until you get this pipeline built. 
And the pipeline has been facing a lot of opposition from indigenous resistance here in British Columbia, and Justin Trudeau is trying to kind of do this tight wire act, and it's, I don't think he's doing a very good job of it, frankly. And so that's kind of where we're at today. I would say the economy is certainly a little slower under Justin Trudeau than it was under Stephen Harper. Um, Justin Trudeau has increased uh, payroll taxes. He's increased some income taxes. He's um, invest. He's tried to target small businesses. He's 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 basically brought a lot of those sort of center left Democrat. Uh, you know, I would say U.S. Democrat or sort of Labor Party uh, policies that are, are kind of harmful to the economy. And the real dichotomy right now for Canadians is really just seeing how hot the U.S. economy is and seeing how kind of we should be. We're typically a country that piggybacks the U.S. economy because we're so integrated. And, uh, you know, I know a ton of the people in the investment and banking world, and they've made a ton of returns on all their U.S. investments the last couple of years. But they've been struggling here in Canada because of the regulatory uncertainty and just, uh, you know, uncertainty around the price of oil, those sorts of things, and whether we're going to actually see uh, uh, movement in the Canadian oil and gas industry. But also we've also seen, you know, higher regulations come in in certain tech industries. And, of course, the cost of living is a big issue, especially in our cities like Toronto and Vancouver, where it's hard to, you know, really see a lot of economic development uh, when people are paying 50% of their their uh, re- uh, income to rents right now, which is out of control. Yeah, well, all very interesting to hear. Uh, last mm. question I want to ask just about the left side of things in Canada before we get to the Conservative sure. Party is uh, briefly, how would you say Justin Trudeau lines up ideologically with the Liberal Party? And the, uh, uh, that is their name, hey? the, the Liberals. I just hear them always say, calling them the Liberals. Um, yes, they are the Liberal Party. Yeah. The and Liberal- they are fairly liberal, I would say. Yeah. Well, uh, the, inter- the reason I'm interested to ask this is because I, I understand, and just correct me if I'm wrong here, that the Liberals have been around for quite a long time, whereas the current uh, incarnation of the Conservative Party is fairly recent. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the Liberal Party of Canada has been around basically since the founding of the country, but they were they. The first Prime Minister of Canada, Johnny McDonald, was actually a Conservative. That that Conservative Party that he was part of doesn't exist, and even the Conservative Party of previous Prime Ministers doesn't exist. As I mentioned, Stephen Harper was the first Prime Minister from the new Conservative Party, today's Conservative Party. The Liberal Party of Canada has been the traditional governing party of Canada over the years. Like I said, we've been a Liberal country. We've had long, long Liberal leaders. Justin Trudeau's father was very popular, especially during his first term. He was actually Prime Minister twice. We had Mackenzie King lead us through the uh, Second World War. He was in there for a long time. And we've had a few other liberals, uh, you know, many other liberal prime ministers through the years. Justin Trudeau really is a departure from what was seen as like kind of the middle ground sort of moderate liberalism we found in the 1990s when I was growing up under Jean Chrétien and and Paul Martin at the end of his, uh, at the end of that dynasty of 13 years of liberal rule from 93 to 2006. And I would, I, would, I would say that definitely what, one thing I appreciated about Jean Chrétien, he was politically incorrect, he was funny, he had a sense of humor. Justin Trudeau has almost zero sense of humor. It's actually kind of one of the <laughs> most pathetic things about him. Yeah. It really is. He has zero sense of humor. And it, 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 People he takes kind. everything so seriously, especially on these social justice issues. And that's what I find frustrating. And I think that you start to see, like, I think that woman who crossed the floor, she was probably... Uh, like a, a middle-of-the-road liberal who would probably have fit really well into the liberals of the 1990s. And in that liberal, oh, by the way, I should mention this, that liberal party had a pro-life caucus, if you can believe it. Now Justin Trudeau made it a, a rule that you can't even 
uh, seek the nomination if you're pro-life in that party. So that's a bit of a, I mean, obviously abortion and that and, and, and the right to life is a huge, you know, ideologically divisive issue, but that can give your viewers or your listeners a little sense of how the parties evolved over 25 years. There was a, there wasn't a majority of the Liberal caucus, but there was certainly a ton of Liberal Catholics in the great Toronto area and, and that, and that sort of thing. And in Montreal who were pro-life in the Liberal caucus now, unless they're keeping it a secret and lying to Justin Trudeau or lying on their nomination papers, there are zero. Yeah, well, it's interesting to see, and I always ask about the opposition first, because I think it gives a bit of a background to, to what we're seeing now. So let's mm. talk about the, the Conservative Party of Canada. Now, the first question I want to ask is, you know, I've been trying to sort of, I, I quite enjoy comparing the major dominant center-right and center-left parties from around the world and it seems to me that the sort of brand of conservatism in Canada is more similar to the brand of conservatism in the UK than it is to the US. The US, in a lot of places, is actually a fairly conservative country, whereas, like you said, yes. Canada is a very liberal country, so the Conservative Party of Canada seems to be more center-right, and on social issues, they don't really push uh, as hard. Um, with that having been... That's right. Yeah, would you say that's a, a fairly accurate representation absolutely the united states is really a unique country i mean if you look at religiosity in the west the united states is one of the only countries that has high religious uh participation especially evangelical rates and so that obviously influences their conservative streak a lot more than any other country i know i would actually say canada's conservative party is actually closer to the australian liberal party than the uk conservatives just because i find the uk conservatives are slipping on a lot of fundamental issues surrounding free speech, these sorts of things. And and I would say that the Australians and Canadians, we kind of have this a little bit of like that, you know, new world edge, especially in the like uh, rural parts of our, our countries. Alberta and even rural British Columbia are actually extremely conservative. But overall, I would say Canada, is, we, we would classify her as a liberal country. So we do have these pockets of like very strong, I would even just say even as strong as American republicanism in Canada. It's about balancing that because in a parliamentary system, um, if you want to you know, form majority governments, you've got to figure out a way generally in Canada to get about 40% of the popular vote. And so it's, it's harder to do that in a country where you don't necessarily have 40% of people that are hardcore, true blue conservatives. You have to get that swing vote, that middle. Yeah. No, and I think that sort of leads up to uh, perhaps what happened at the last... I should mention, in case your listeners yes. aren't familiar, the Australian Liberal Party is actually conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that does happen sometimes yeah. with the naming. Um, yeah, the, yeah. the Australian uh, political system is, is something I'd say, but I, I, I'm aware of that. Uh, I suppose the, mm. if the listeners want to Google it, they can, they can check that out. Now, I suppose, you know, this is just, again, interesting to talk about because it sort of leads up to what happened at the last uh, Conservative Party uh, leadership election. So, from my knowledge, Stephen Harper stepped down. We had Ronna Ambrose as the in- interim uh, leader of the party. And then an enormous number of people, something like 18 or 19, I remember seeing those debate stages. It was just chock full. It was like there wasn't enough space to fit everyone on the stage. And everyone was sort of half much, like speaking half French and half English. It was a very interesting thing to watch. Um, and we had this guy called Maxime Bernier, who was a Quebecer representing the riding of Bose and I heard about him because I think some libertarian magazine or webzine or something like that that I was following mentioned him. And I started to hear him talking about, 
we need to end uh, supply management and we need to go for free trade. And he was talking about all these policies and it just seemed so bizarre to me that a party which was trying to say it was conservative, so as to mean presumably fiscally conservative as well, did not already have policies like this. So in the end, he didn't win, and uh, a guy called Andrew Scheer won. And uh, let's, I'm just interested to hear your take. What exactly happened in that leadership race, and why do you think Bernier didn't win? Well, it was very, very close. The sheer one by about, uh, I think it was a percent or maybe a percent and a half or 2% or 51.49 or 50.5 or 49.5. Obviously, it's one of these strange um, leadership races where it was like a ranked ballot. So if your first choice gets eliminated, then those votes go down to the next choice and this sort of thing. So it's a little tricky formula. I'm not exactly sure how that worked. But what I was able to garner from the results, and this was actually, this was going on during uh, my time in the media, um, that... Andrew Scheer made a political decision to stick with the status quo on supply management. And that actually is something that's very popular. Can, you, can you explain quickly what, what supply management is? Because don't, I don't really think we have something like this in South Africa. I don't really know what other country does it. Yeah, essentially it's a, it's a way of protecting the Canadian farmers. And so it, basically supply management right now states that all, 95% of dairy produ- uh, sold in Canada must be produced by Canadian dairy farms. And this was a, a, a strategy that was sort of evolved in the, you know many decades ago when, when we had a, more of a, a nationalistic and protectionist fervor in our, in our country because we felt that we could be overrun um, culturally by the United States. And I think that during... Uh, a time of pre-globalization, this might have made sense. And it was also a way to ensure a quality food supply that was consistent by having a quota system. Supply management runs on a quota system by farms. But the problem is, is it's terrible for consumers. I mean, I live in Vancouver and we're on the border of the United States. It's only a, an hour away from my house to get across the border or maybe an hour and a half on a slow day and then only four hours to Seattle, but only an hour and a half, two hours to a nice small uh, border town called Bellingham where I can go and buy a gallon of milk or four liters of milk uh, for like, you know, 25% of the price that I pay, uh, even with the exchange rate and the cheese as well and chicken, poultry as well. But really, in Canada, we're the only example of a real city where people can do that, where they can get across border quickly and get groceries. So the whole consumer argument really rings a little hollow throughout the rest of the country because people don't really have that opportunity and they've never seen it. They they haven't been able to supplement their own groceries by going to the states and seeing how much cheaper everything is. But of course, politics always gets into this. So what Andrew Scheer did was he said, I'm going to continue to support supply management because I know Maxim Bernier has come out against it and I'm going to win all his friends in Quebec that should be supporting him because he's a Quebecer, he's a a Francophone and basically Bernier lost uh, a lot of support in and around his own riding, his own city of Quebec City, which is the most conservative part of Quebec and Andrew Scheer managed to win because of that. Now, at the convention, when they, Scheer was announced, but they, Bernier and Scheer embraced, they, they discussed that they were going to work together to defeat Justin Trudeau. But as time went on over the last year or so, it seemed that Bernier was frustrated that during the NAFTA renegotiation, that Justin Trudeau and Andrew Scheer seemed to be saying the same thing, that we would, you know, we were defending Canadian, we would defend Canadian interests and against Donald Trump. And Bernier had written a book at the time. And so he started to leak pages of his book online, 
suggesting why he thought supply management was a mistake or why why he felt that supply management issue cost him the leadership election. And, and of course, in Canada, the media just, and, and this is not untrue of the United States as well, the media loves to pounce on any negative story on conservatives. They just love to, like, just pounce on conservatives, yeah, especially the CBC, which is the similar to the BBC and uh, SABC's government-funded um, broadcasting. And so they took advantage of this. They played it up. They really tried to push this schism. And it was, of course, you know, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals have tons of media allies. And so they were pushing all this stuff too. And eventually, I guess, Bernier just, you know, didn't want to be muzzled. He didn't want to be told to just shut up and be a backbench uh, or not even in the shadow cabinet anymore. And so uh, Mr. Bernier decided to... Uh, quit the Conservative Party, and now he's formed his own party called the the People's Party of Canada. I have some reservations about that. It sounds a little too much like a, you know, like the people's, you know, these these, these dictatorships over back in uh, Asia where they, they, they name their country after the people, the People's Republic of China or the DPRK or all that sort of stuff. But anyway, he formed this People's uh, Party of Canada, and it's going to be a libertarian uh, uh, option for conservative voters if they don't believe that Andrew Scheer is a true conservative. I'm personally skeptical that this is going to work. I don't see a ton of you know, buzz about it other than what the media is trying to drum up. He hasn't yet had any MPs cross the floor with him to join him. He's had some former conservative MPs endorse him. I think he would be very popular with younger voters who maybe have never had the chance to vote for Stephen Harper and have only seen Justin Trudeau uh, in power. I think Bernie could still be popular in his own area riding of Quebec, but as I said, he's not going to be that popular in and around the farming communities of Quebec because he's against supply management. So I'm, I'm, I'm really skeptical personally, even though I, I should mention I didn't have a membership at the time because I was working in the media. I personally would have voted for Max and Bernier for leader. But I think that after Andrew Scheer won, in politics, you know, you can be as idealistic as you want, but it's more important, in my opinion, for conservatives in this country to build on the legacy of Stephen Harper's party that we established for nine years in government and and really remove Justin Trudeau than it is to be overly idealistic about things like supply management. And if we're being honest, I believe that that what will happen is Justin Trudeau will cave a bit to to to. Donald Trump, and whether it goes from 95% down to 85% or 80%, there will be some deal where the American dairy is allowed into Canada and the taxpayer ends up subsidizing the farmers for their loss. I mean, that's that's what's going to happen. And then the conservatives will, will, will agree with that eventually. And so really, I don't know if, if, if it's, if it's going to be the, the hill that Max and Bernie wants to die on. Personally, I'd love it. But, you know, to learn as you get older, this is an incremental battle. It's hard to simply, you know, say let's throw it all away and, and I, let's let's go become a, let's join a party where maybe fifteen percent of the Canadians agree with everything that they say. Um, I would say that this would have been a smarter idea in a system that doesn't rely on the first past the post system, where we elect riding uh, members of parliament from the ridings, because vote splitting has been a killer to the conservative movement in this country in the past. I mentioned in the nineties. That's when the, the Conservative Party had split. There was the old Progressive Conservative Party, which had really uh, failed the country under Brian Mulroney. They were defeated. They lost. They were. They had. The, they were a majority government. And they were reduced to two seats in '93. And in the West, the Reform Party, which was the pre predecessor to the current Conservative Party, emerged. And in Quebec at that time, the Bloc Québécois, which was a sovereignist party, had emerged. And so, 
fracturing of the vote in the conservative movement has happened in this country. And so there's a lot of people worried about Maxim Bernier doing that. I think that there's still enough time to kind of gauge how successful Maxim Bernier will be. I think if he doesn't have uh, a, a, you know, some serious star candidates, a really strong platform by the spring, I think he might only just be reelected himself and maybe a one member party. And maybe he will run a few candidates across the the country and, and win five percent of the popular vote, and that, in that case, that could harm the Conservatives. Although I'm not sure that that uh, is enough to quite do it. Yeah, you know, we unfortunately do have this problem of, of vote splitting. I mean, uh, you know, the way I see it is that I quite like the environment which some parties have. Uh, to give an example, in the United States, I quite enjoy yes. the fact that the Republican Party and the Democratic parties are broadly left and right, but within the party you have such enormous variation of ideas that you can be Rand Paul or you can be John McCain and still fit mm -hmm. in, for example, the Republican Party. Now, uh, Bernier obviously felt like he could no longer fit into the Conservative Party and he also mentioned corruption. I remember, in I think, uh, in his statement that he was leaving the party and forming his own one. And I think that probably had to do with the, the supply management and the, the vote of the farmers in Quebec and and around that sort of area. Yeah, and uh, the rounding up of, yeah, basically, I, I should have mentioned, what Scheer did was he signed up all these dairy farmers to join the Conservative Party, donate the full amount of money that they would be allowed to, to his campaign, and then basically promise them that his official policy of the party would be to keep supply management. Yeah, well, so well, whether, whether you believe that's corrupt or just good politics, I guess, is another debate. But that's that's what exactly that's basically what happened. Well, look, I'm not surprised Bernier is certainly upset by that. I can, I can at least mm -hmm. see where he's coming from. Uh, but you know, we know when you, politics is a brutal game. I mean, we just seen, for example, in the UK in the last election, they have Nick Clegg, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, lost his seat, and this is the guy who was the leader. Um, so it's, it's, wasn't he? And also, he was deputy prime minister with Cameron, wasn't he? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that's how that's how big it was. He lost his seat to a Labour guy who was later suspended from the Labour Party for lewd online uh, posting messages online. I can't exact. <laughs> I can't remember the exact content of of what they were, but it was just such an enormous shock. But that's kind of what happens someday. And I, you know, what I really hope will not happen is that uh, Bernier will end up with this party that just in, ends up being a flop and he'll sort of fade into political obscurity because he can't find a, a political home in Canada. If he has to go back to the Conservatives, that might be a tad bit embarrassing for him. I don't know if that'll really happen. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't think they would let him back at this point. Uh, not, unless unless Scheer is really loses the next election badly to Justin Trudeau or something, and then there's a real soul-searching of, of what it means to what the Conservative Party of Canada is going to be. I don't see that happening. I just do... I, I, the Conservative movement in this country has a very strong base in Western Canada now. Alberta, um, I think they will... I think all but three seats in Alberta are Conservative, Saskatchewan, and even BC, we, we kind of are a bit more swing, but we have our are portions of this province that are strong conservative. And now what you've seen in Ontario is the provincial government's changed there. We have Doug Ford, mayor of the, the infamous, or for, uh, brother of the infamous mayor of Toronto, Toronto, Rob Ford, who's the premier of Ontario, and that is the first conservative government provincially there in, uh, in 16, 17, maybe even longer. I think 99 was their last one. So they, they just flipped that province. And so that could be a bit of a change in the, the, the guard there because uh, in Ontario. So that's where I see Andrew Scheer focusing on. He's also kind of been doing this courting of these sort of soft nationalists in Quebec 
into the party too, which is a little bit dangerous because, as I mentioned, it's, it's happened before within the conservative movement and it's backfired, but it remains to be seen. Because I, I, I do believe that in 2018, we're, at, we're not at the same point where we were with Quebec, uh, you know, 20 years ago when referendums were happening and we almost lost part of, uh, we lost them to independence almost. And are the Quebec nationalists in Canada more sort of left-wing nationalists, a bit like in Scotland, or do they tend to be more right-wingers? Or what's the general... Uh... They, I would say on fiscal policy, they tend to be very left-wing, but on social social issues, they are probably border... Like, some of them are borderline... Are they Catholic? Anti-immigrant racist. Uh, Catholic, uh, the Catholic Church is prominent there, but I wouldn't say that there's a lot of religiosity in, in Quebec. What it is more about is cultural protectionism. So... Quebecers already, generally francophones in Quebec, already feel that their culture is under pressure from English-speaking Anglophone culture in Canada. And so immigration, especially in um, traditionally rural parts of Quebec, uh, is opposed. And I'll, I'll tell you, the, the issue of the niqab, which is the Muslim um, face covering, and even the hijab, uh, in Quebec plays much more than it does in the rest of the Canada. In fact, there are even left-wing, left-leaning parties, right-leaning parties, they seem to agree in Quebec that that they don't want these, um, it, they don't want cultural or religious symbols displayed in public. It's a pretty big portion of the public that uh, wants them banned. But throughout the last few elections, it, it's been difficult because people haven't articulated that in a way that people find is not racist or the media sort of doesn't pick on. So it hasn't really shown up at the ballot box, but it's sort certainly there in a lot of opinion polling, which is interesting. So Quebec nationalists are. I would say that most of the nationalism there is soft nationalism. Fervent sovereignty is not really fought for much in that in that province anymore. You can see that in the results of the truly nationalistic and, and separatist parties doing poorly. There's a Quebec election actually here in, I think, in a week or so, provincially, and we might see the sort of right-leaning uh, coalition d'Avenir Quebec uh, win for the first time, and their leader is a former sovereignist-turned sort of federalist conservative. So... There might be some uh, look. There might be some interested people within the federal conservative party to see how this uh, the CAQ does there for the first time, and see if there can be uh, an opportunity for the Conservative Party of Canada to pick up some seats in Quebec, where Justin Trudeau has traditionally done very well. All right. Now, with all of this context, uh, let's talk about the next election. So, first of all, when is the next election happening? And I know you said you guys are quite similar to the UK. So, does the Prime Minister? call the date when it will happen within a certain time frame or what is the process uh, like that? It used to be. we. Stephen Harper was the first prime minister and first government. He instituted fixed election dates. So we have fixed elections every four years. Obviously, it's still within the right of the prime minister to call an election any time. Uh, so there have been speculation that Justin Trudeau would try to call a snap election with the disorganization of Bernier and all that sort of stuff. But I think that that's just more media having nothing to report on during the summer sort of thing. Uh, uh-huh. But uh, the next election is definitely uh, going to be, I believe is going to be October. It's set for October 20th next year, I believe. And so we're just over a year away. And so this is really the unofficial start of the campaign. You're going to see a ton of government announcements uh, from the liberals. They've already started really over the summer uh, targeting certain writings with, you know, all the sorts of bribing people with their own money as all governments tend to do. Um, you can see the, the sarcasm. And this is where, you know, like I truly, you know, you would hope that someone like Maxim Bernier, should he get a party, you know, would be the one person you could you would see end corporate welfare. But I, I do digress. The next election, it's going to be fought, I think, on a couple key issues. The first one is this, uh, like I mentioned, this national climate strategy of Justin Trudeau to implement a federal carbon tax and his failure to get 
our oil and gas in, uh, resources to new markets at the same time. Justin Trudeau has made a big deal about balancing the economy and the environment uh, and his belief that you could do both, and yet he's done neither. The big issue, obviously, uh, for Justin Trudeau is going to be trying to run on his record and seeing if he can get a deal done. I'm not actually sure if they, the Liberals, what their strategy is. I think it may benefit them actually to not get a deal done with Trump and continue to try to present Trump as the problem to Canadians and that this really isn't Justin Trudeau's fault. But if Justin Trudeau does get a trade deal, this new NAFTA or whatever done, that's obviously going to be something he can run on. Um, I think you're going to see the issue of uh, we're going to have, we're going to be very interested to see we're going to become the first Western country or first country anywhere I believe to actually not just decriminalize but legalize marijuana and that's going to be happening here on October 17th so just what three weeks from now and that's going to be an interesting topic to see if that works if if Justin Trudeau is able to uh, and the Liberals are able to roll that out smoothly or whether the people are going to be still buying off. The black market and how this is going to affect Canadians crossing the border. I was shocked to learn the other day that there has been no agreement between the two countries as to uh, what the United States will do if they ask someone if they've legally consumed marijuana in our own country. And the United States has said, if you admit that you have, you will get a lifetime ban from the country. Well, that's so a bit to of a, me, like that's yeah, that's a bit a of a strange of, something that should have been. It's a strange situation there because within the United States, that jurisdiction would come under the state. So it seems to me like it would depend on what state's border crossing you were going through. I mean, that's no, because the border, unfortunately, the border is a federal uh, issue. So even here, when you cross into Washington, which has legalized marijuana, was, was one of the first two states to do it in 2012. Um, that federal border is, you know, that's their jurisdiction. And even then, they were still uh, banning people. Um, who admitted it. And there's still, like, there's tons of issues with this. Like, for instance, in Nevada, where Las Vegas is, I was there, I've been there a couple times this year, and they've legalized marijuana too, but because the casino industry is federally licensed, they want nothing to do with that. And so it's a bit of an issue that there works what rights, what's, which uh, laws uh, supersede which, and obviously federal laws always supersede state laws in the United States, and so the borders and customs and immigration is under a... Uh, a uh, federal jurisdiction. So that's that's the tricky one. I am just shocked that they didn't at least, you know, put this whole thing on hold, legalizing marijuana, until that they could come to an agreement with the United States. In fact, I believe that that was the reason why it wasn't pursued previously under previous liberal governments, even though it was they were interested, is that they just simply could not find a way to make an agreement with the United States. And it seems silly that during a time when you're negotiating a giant trade deal, uh, that you couldn't have asked this to be included from the beginning, rather than the sort of the, the things that now infamously Justin Trudeau and our trade minister Christian Freeland pushed for, which was gender equity in a trade deal, uh, indigenous rights respected in a trade deal, and telling the United States that right to work wouldn't be allowed in a new trade deal. It seems ridiculous. It is ridiculous that they went into the, the negotiating with the Americans, especially under Donald Trump, with these types of goals. Um, I don't know who advised them that. This, these would have been maybe appropriate with Barack Obama in office with the more progressive agenda, but it's so ridiculous that they approached the Americans with this. And that's why I believe we don't have a deal. I believe it offended Donald Trump and it offended Robert Lighthizer. So we're going to have to see about that. And gosh, the marijuana issue, I think it's going to be a huge failure come October 17th, I think, especially in provinces where you don't have uh, government stores ready to go. It's going to be, people are just going to be continuing to go to the black market, and who knows if they'll ever switch. 
No, I'm just, uh, one thing just came to my mind when you mentioned the marijuana issue. Sure. I am aware that I think in uh, Nunavut in Canada, alcohol is completely illegal, or, or it is almost completely illegal. Uh, I, I'm just interested to ask you about that. I've seen a few documentaries about it. Do you know, is, is there much talk about the sort of uh, prohibition on alcohol in the north of Canada? I haven't heard too much about it, that it does not surprise me, because one thing that I know about northern, remote, desolate communities is that they do have addiction rates much higher. It is a bit more of an issue where um, you go to these towns and people are very frank with you. There's not much to do but drink and do drugs sometimes on the weekends is what people will admit. Um, and so that's kind of sad. And I think just there with, with Nunavut, because it's sort of an indigenous territory that's self-governing like that, I think that they have a they probably have a right to do that. Now, with marijuana, I should mention, there are going to be opportunities for individual municipalities to not have stores open in there if they don't want. So, for instance, there's a suburb of Vancouver no, known as Richmond. It has a very large Chinese population. Of course, uh, Chinese uh, immigrants tend to be very against uh, legalization of drugs, marijuana in particular, socially con very socially conservative, especially uh, in the new wave of mainland Chinese immigrants who uh, moved to Vancouver in the recent years. And Richmond is a very... Um, but a space where there's a lot of them. So as far as I know, uh, already switch in the municipal election here in October that Richmond will not be having any marijuana stores operating within their, their um, jurisdiction. Yeah, that's quite interesting. We have a similar system in some places here in South Africa. I know for one that the suburb of Pinelands in Cape Town, I don't know if you've ever visited Cape Town much, but that is a dry area. There's no alcohol allowed to be okay. sold there. Personally, I'm in favor of that sort of federalism to a low level, but but in general, I'm I'm more, you know, being being more of a libertarian. I think people should make the choices for themselves. Now, anyway, this is all interesting uh, context to go into. Really, the the big question. Uh, I'm going to ask you: What's your prediction for the upcoming election in Canada? Well, I mean, I'm not much on predictions. Although I did correctly predict Donald Trump and Brexit, so I do have a good. Did you predict here. Brexit? But I was wrong. Of, I, I was wrong about the provincial election here in 2017 in, in British Columbia, unfortunately. So, let I would say that I think Andrew. I won't make a, a prediction that Andrew Scheer will win a majority government, but I think there's a good chance that he will either win a minority government or Justin Trudeau will be reduced to a minority government. Um, I know as I say that, as I say that, that that's going to rely on the NDP, which is the Liberal Democrats, the third party, the part they've never been in government federally, uh, tend to be a bit more socialist. Um, they have to really step up their game and their leader has to uh, convince uh, Canadians that he's a viable option. Generally, conservatives win governments when the NDP gets 20% of the vote. And I know that talks about vote splitting, so maybe there's a new strategy. I see some polling that can show both the liberals and the conservatives in and around 30, over 35% of the popular vote. That would be uh, interesting if that if that happens. So I think Scheer can eke it out. He's really got to rely, I think, on like, um, either Justin Trudeau, like, letting the economy really sag behind the United States, or he's going to have to come out and say, like, you know, this is my plan for Canada, this is why Justin Trudeau's failing, and here it is. And then I think Scheer can do it. The one thing I think that could hold Scheer back is if he tries too much of this, you know, politically correct, middle-of-the-road, centrist, sort of big tent stuff, and it really just suppresses voter enthusiasm among the conservative base. But I, I could see Scheer winning a minority government pretty easily. 
that's very interesting to hear because it seems like whatever the situation, you're pretty confident that the Liberals are going to be losing votes in the next election. I, I was really they not sure. They did very well in the last election. It's going to be very difficult for them to repeat the performance of the last election. They, they, it was Trudeau-mania, really, and they won a lot of traditional seats that they've done very poorly in over the years, and it, it, it looks like a, there's a lot of outliers in certain... They, they will lose seats. It's whether or not they'll lose enough to reduce their majority to a minority. I really believe that will happen no matter what. It's whether or not the Conservatives can gain enough to, to get into that minority territory. All right. Well, we'll certainly be keeping. Uh, I'll certainly be keeping my eyes uh, closely watching the, that election cycle when it comes up in Canada. So, thank you very much for the background to that. Last question. I just want to talk about, as I have to do, being a South African. You know, we're facing a bit of a crisis in property rights here in South Africa. Uh, in my opinion, the election we're going to have next year is going to be a defining election in South African history if we vote in one particular direction. And for the first time in quite a while, a lot of countries and a lot of media houses around the world outside of South Africa, uh, uh, you know, are actually talking about mm -hmm. us and talking about the situation here. So I know you used to be involved in the media. Maybe you can talk a bit about that and your experiences. And that's where I first heard about you. Um, but has anything been mentioned uh, in mainstream media or mainstream politics in Canada regarding South Africa and the situation here? Not yet. I got to be honest. Canadian media, you know, when I would say that Canadians often get a lot of our international news either from the BBC or Americans. We uh, the CBC sometimes. Uh, the, the truth is, the CBC has the biggest budget this government runs. So sometimes you will get some of that stuff on the CBC. But because we're so close to the other English language news, we often let those global uh, giants like BBC sort of uh, take that stuff. So I've seen some stuff on BBC. I've seen some stuff on CNN. Uh, their international stuff. Um, I've seen Mamasi Mamani uh, do a few interviews as well. I agree with you. This is a this is a turning point election for the country. The first real chance that the other parties, other than the ANC, have to make an impact. And you know, one thing that I know my family is grateful for. And you know, whether it makes a huge difference or not, there is um, you know the, the ability for expatriates South Africans to to cast votes now. This will be, the, I believe, the second election they're able to do that. And so. I know that that matters to my family who want to see the DA do do well and want to see an alternative to the ANC. But I know there's a lot of people who are absolutely terrified of Julius Malema and the EFF. And so, you know, I it's hard for me to see a way that the ANC and EFF vote doesn't combine to win the next election. But you know, hopefully there's uh, you know enough time that things could change. But you can you can fill me in a little better because I'm, you know, I try to follow yeah. American politics closely. I try to follow Canadian politics is even closer. And so sometimes the South African stuff, it takes me a month or a couple of weeks in between when I when I get some good updates. Oh, of course. Look, and I and I don't expect you to be following the, the politics of a fairly random country, even if you do have links uh, here. But uh, no, I'm just always interested to ask because, like I said, you know, South Africa in the scope of the world is a fairly irrelevant country. I would say our most significant involvement in global politics is the fact that we're now a member of BRICS with Brazil, Russia, India and China. Um, and even then we're a bit, I mean, Brazil, Russia, India and China, the economies of all those countries are just vastly bigger than ours. So we mm. are quite out of our weight there. Uh, there was a very funny cartoon I, by Zapiro, a cartoonist, where he had BRICS and he had the four heads of state as a big brick that you build a house with and the South African president Zuma as a briquette that you use on a bride. 
Um, I thought that was, that was absolutely brilliant because it, it displays the situation. But I'm just always uh, interested to ask because I believe that the issue of property rights and, and what's going on right now, if we choose the wrong path, it's going to come down to international pressure. I believe a large part of why apartheid ended in the end was due to international pressure. Certainly not all of it, but a, a large chunk was all the sanctions that was happening to South Africa. Um, and thank goodness for that, because otherwise we yes. might still have apartheid for the next uh, for the 20 or 30 years later. Uh, but we didn't. So, you know, I'm, I'm quite glad that people are talking about it. I really cringe when I read some op-eds in the New York Times and the Washington Post and so on and so forth. Um, so we always appreciate, I suppose, a bit of press co- uh, coverage about it. Yeah, no, just sort of what I, I, I mean, I know that your, your, your listeners probably already know, but how do you feel the DA, what do, you, what do you think the DA's chances are in making a significant impact in the next election? There's no way they can win, right? Yeah, you know, this has been a large topic of discussion in our groups. We have a number of Facebook groups where we talk about this left mm-hmm. and right. I have to be completely honest with you. I think the DA is going to lose votes in the next election. Um, obviously, you haven't been following politics very, very closely in South Africa, but what is sort of happening now at the moment is that the DA has, for the past five or six years, maybe even longer than that, been shifting gradually, gradually to the left. And the unfortunate part of that is, in doing so, it's taken on the sort of identity politics and it's going in that direction. It's not 100% there yet. Um, There are still members of the DA which are outstanding and fantastic individuals, and I have the utmost respect for them, and members of parliament to boot. But there are also members of parliament who are absolute nutjobs, and I'm not going to mention names, but the problem is that when I see those MPs from the DA taking a great role in its politics and the formation of DA policies, I personally cannot, with a sane mind, uh, you know, put my ex in the voting box uh, next to the name DA anymore. I I do believe that who you vote for is quite important. You know, I'm not one of these people who just sort of vote, likes to vote for the lesser of two evils. I I sort of like to put my support behind a party. And I can tell you one thing, certainly from the circles in South Africa that I hang out in, a lot of the more traditional classical liberals and libertarians, there is enormous disillusionment with the DA in favor of a few other parties. COPE is on the rise. I don't know if you know about COPE, but their leader, Mosiwa Lakota, has been staunchly uh, speaking out in favor of property rights uh, in South Africa, and I've been very impressed with him. Um, in addition to that, civil society in South Africa is now gaining a voice. We have a group called Afri Forum, who are really having a big impact, and they have over 200,000 members and their uh, deputy CEO testified in the South African Parliament Committee, and he just got absolutely lashed by the members, you know, left-wing members of this committee, and the video went viral on YouTube, and the response was that the following day, or a few days afterwards, Afri Forum had the record number of new sign-ups to their organization. So, it's an interesting wow. time in South Africa now, but, uh, you know, my guess is, I think the DA is going to lose a bit, I think smaller parties are going to increase a bit, and I think the EFF is going to increase substantially. And I say that just because a poll recently came out from the Institute of Race Relations here. So okay. that's my take on it. I could be 100% wrong, though. You know, it's still it's still wild. So we'll see what happens. It's like gambling. It's, I mean, betting on politics is really like gambling, isn't it? It, it is sort of. I'm very impressed that you got Brexit right. Um, I must say, Trump... 
I think that was it's possible to have predicted Trump. I never would have predicted Brexit in a hundred million years. So well done for doing that. I was quite surprised when you said that. Um, uh, I know my dad was my dad was not having it for one second. He thought I was crazy to think that that was going to happen. And you know, I, I just it was sort of a Brexit. Really, was that first kind of shift around the world. And I, and I mentioned this, and I know we we're going to wrap up here, but I, it was almost like Justin Trudeau got elected right before that world shift happened. He was the last of these sort of like, we were, were last of these elections where people were apathetic towards, you know, you know, ideology. We just wanted someone that made us feel good. And then ever since then, it's kind of been a complete 180, the way the world, especially the Western democracies of the world have sort of shifted. And I, and I really wonder if 2019 will be that election for Canada or whether we've kind of just gone through this whole phase in you know, a malaise under Justin Trudeau and then by the time 2019 comes around, things will be so different anyway. And so it's quite fascinating because it really felt like that Brexit and that the Trump, it just shifted the whole world on its head. And it feels like we've started a whole new kind of era ever since then. Yeah, I think that view that what, what you said of Trudeau's election being the sort of last of the old era and the Brexit vote being the first one of the sort of new more right-wing, sort of more populist, more nationalist sort of era. It's a very interesting yes. observation. I hope it doesn't happen to South Africa because when populist nationalists come to South Africa, there's not one part of our history where it's ever been good. And I don't foresee it being Fair good. Enough, yes. uh, so we'll see what happens. But Christopher Wilson, thank you very much for the interview. I really appreciate your time and I wish you all the best in the future. Hey, I hope we can do it again. For sure, man. Thanks. I had a great conversation. But until next time, thanks for chatting. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Rational Standard Podcast. You can find our articles at www.rationalstandard.com. Give us a like on Facebook and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or listen to the episodes online at PIPA. In addition to that, you can join our mailing list at rationalstandard.com or you can find me on Twitter at Nick Babaya or at Rational Stand. Stay tuned for the next episode.